Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. As you know, we are continuing our way through these um, selected psalms, sort of the highlights of the psalms, and many of these psalms are psalms that we sing out of our Psalter hymnal. So we have the blessing of not only hearing these, these psalms exposited, but also singing these psalms as a means of praise and response uh, to the preaching of God's Word. So Psalm 91. Please hear now the Word of our God. <clears throat> He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I shall satisfy him and show him my salvation." Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, as Christians, we are all pragmatists to some degree or another. Uh, we all uh, look to get something out of our Christian faith. Uh, it might be joy and peace, a joy and peace that transcends our current circumstances. It might be Comfort and stability when the dark storm clouds of life come rolling in. In fact, our Heidelberg Catechism invites us to consider the Christian faith by asking us, what is, what is our only comfort in life and in death? The pitch that our catechism gives us is that you need the Christian faith because you need comfort. 
Now this psalm, Psalm 91, speaks to the cash value of belonging to the people and covenant of God. It speaks to the covenant blessings that are ours within the family of, within the family of God, the household of God. In fact, one commentator speaking of Psalm 91 says that this psalm contains some of the strongest affirmations of confidence in God's deliverance and protection in all of Scripture. There are indeed wonderful metaphors of God and wonderful promises of protection that we find in this psalm. For instance, God here in this psalm is described as our shade, protecting us from the scorching sun. God here is described as our mother bird, protecting us from the threats and dangers of this outside world. God is described as our armor, protecting us from the weapons of our enemies. And, and then we see countless, of, countless promises, promises of protection from earthly dangers that we experience in this trouble-filled world. These promises that we find in Psalm 91 are indeed strong promises of comfort. However, one wonders whether this psalm promises too much. For instance, uh, verse 10, the psalmist says, No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent. And you think to yourself, really? No bad thing will be permitted to come into my life. No sickness, disease, affliction shall come over my body. Verses uh, uh, 7 and 8, the psalmist describes this promise of, of safety and victory in battle. And you think to yourself, really? Is this, is this what's promised to, to Christians? You continue on in verse 11 through 12, the psalmist promises that God will send his angels to preserve you lest you strike your foot against a stone. So one pastor has said, is God really promising that we won't stub our toe in this life? Verse 16, with long life I shall satisfy him, the faithful follower of God. Does God promise us a long earthly life if we're faithful? After reading this psalm, yes, we come away with, with a strong note of comfort, but we begin to wonder, is this true for me? Is this true for us? If we're honest with ourselves, many of us, or at least many people we know, have experienced the dangers that Psalm 91 seems to be promising protection against. And again, we wonder, is Psalm 91 just a compilation of trite platitudes to help us feel better on the dark days? A nice ancient poem that we can turn to. Or we may think, maybe the reason why I haven't really experienced these promises of protection is, is, is because I need to have a certain quality of faith or I need to have a sufficient amount of faith or maybe I just need to be sufficiently faithful enough. Maybe this psalm is for the upper echelon of Christians. And if I, if I just have a little bit more faith or am I a little bit more faithful, then I can trigger the promises that this psalm speaks of. Now, what I'm trying to describe is that there's a, a level of complexity that comes with trying to, to interpret and imply, apply this psalm to our lives. Yes, it's comforting, 
But when you scratch a little bit beneath the surface, there's a layer of complexity. So the question that I'd like us to consider as we navigate our, our way through this psalm is how should we understand these promises? How should we understand these promises of protection that we hear in this psalm? We need to understand three things. Three things in particular. We need to understand uh, these promises in their historical context. We need to understand how Jesus fulfills these promises. And then lastly, and, and um, arguably the most important, we need to understand that these promises are for us. They're for us. They're for you. They're for me. Well, we don't know exactly who wrote uh, Psalm 91. I mentioned last week that Psalm 90 was written by Moses. Um, Moses may have composed Psalm 91. David may have composed Psalm 90. We don't know exactly who wrote Psalm 91. But we do know that it was written by an Israelite during the time of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, last time I checked, we do not live during the time of the Mosaic Covenant. I'm not here this morning to offer sacrifices on behalf of your sins. We are not gathering in a tabernacle or a temple. Uh, You do not have priests that you look to as a mediator, intercessor before God, an earthly uh, priest. We do not live in the old Mosaic covenant. We live in the new covenant. We live in a different covenantal administration uh, from which this psalm was originally written. And so I'd like us to first consider the covenantal context of Psalm 91. What was going on when the psalmist originally composed this psalm? Now, this psalm is reminding Israel of the covenant blessings that were enjoined to that Mosaic covenant, the Old Covenant that comprises most of the Old Testament. Psalm 91 is speaking of these covenant, covenantal blessings that were enjoined to the Mosaic covenant. Now, Leviticus 26 is a chapter that speaks about the the curses and the blessings of this Mosaic Covenant. I'd like to read from Leviticus 26, verses 6 through 8. And in in these verses, God is speaking of these promises of protection or these blessings that he is offering to Israel. God says, I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Now notice in particular three promises that God is giving to Israel here in Leviticus 26. He tells them that that they do not need to fear. None shall make you afraid. They have no reason to be afraid of earthly threats. He says that he will remove the harmful beasts from them. He will give them victory over these wild animals that were threats to them. And then he says that he will give them victory in battle. A hundred shall chase uh, uh, 10,000 and you will have victory. Now consider how these same promises are recast in Psalm 91. So in Psalm 91 verse 5, the psalmist says, You will not fear, and goes on to speak about a a, a number of things that that Israel does not need to fear. 
So we see that repeated. You will not fear. And then verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only see with your eyes the recompense of the wicked. So we see again that this repetition of the promise of victory and safety in battle. And then verse 13, you will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion, the serpent, you will trample underfoot. The wild beasts will be defeated. So really what the psalmist is doing in the original horizon of, of this psalm is he's reminding Israel of the covenant blessings that were enjoined to that Mosaic covenant. The covenantal administration that Israel lived under that was enacted at the foot of Mount Sinai. The psalmist is reminding them of this covenant that they are currently in. And we know that this covenant was conditional. In Leviticus 26, before God speaks of these promises of blessings, he says this, If you walk in my statues and observe my commandments and do them, then you will enjoy these promises of protection and they will be yours. We also see a level of conditionality in, in verse 9 of Psalm 71. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, then no evil shall befall you, no plague shall enter your tent. Or, or consider verse 14, because he holds fast to me in love, then I will deliver and protect and be with him in trouble. The psalmist is reminding Israel again of the stipulations of the covenant, the conditionality of this covenant. Furthermore, you'll notice in verses 3 through 13, the psalmist shifts in his, in his language. So verse 2, is this, he uses the I. He gives this personal confession. And then verses 3 through 13, he uses a second person pronoun. He says, you. And then verses 14 through 16 is this divine oracle where God is speaking to this faithful servant of the Lord. But verses 3 through 13 come across as if the, the psalmist is reminding Israel as a single, singular whole of the blessings that God gave them in this covenant that they are under. Be reminded. That's why he's saying you. Be reminded, people of Israel, of these promises that you were given at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now we know, based on the history of this old covenant, we know that Israel forsook uh, these promises of protection. They disobeyed. They did not make the Lord their God their refuge. They fled for refuge in idols made of stone, wood, gold, and silver. As a consequence, they reaped the whirlwind. They didn't have victory over battle. Rather, they were defeated and taken into exile by the Babylonians and the Syrians. The harmful beasts had victory over them. And we see that they inherited the curses of the covenant that God delineated for them in Leviticus 26 and other places. And so we see in the, on the original horizon, the psalmist is this reminding Israel of the agreement that God has made with them and with Israel as a nation. Now, as I previously mentioned, verses 14 through 16, this, uh, the psalm changes. It's this divine oracle where, where God is speaking to this, this person, this he, uh, this faithful Israelite who keeps the covenant and who enjoys these covenantal blessings, not only for himself, but for the people with whom he represents. And so I'd like us to now transition to consider how, how Jesus how Jesus fulfills 
this psalm. As we consider how Jesus fulfills this psalm, we're also going to consider how this psalm is for us. These last two points are sort of woven together like two threads. Well, Jesus fulfills this, this, this psalm in two main ways. He fulfills this psalm as the better Israel and as the divine protector. As the better Israel and as the divine protector. Do you know where Psalm 91 is quoted in, in the Gospels? When Satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Satan leads Jesus out into the wilderness to, to, to the edge of this cliff. And he says, okay, if you are the son of God, why don't you throw yourself off this cliff? For Psalm 91 says uh, that he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus, do you really believe God's word? Do you believe God's word enough to test it and throw yourself off this cliff? uh, Satan is testing Jesus, testing to see if Jesus really is that perfect Israelite, to see if Jesus really has made his father his refuge, to see if Jesus really does hold fast to his father in love. Now notice how sneaky Satan is in, in this temptation. The way he casts this temptation is in the sense that it's as if the the only way Jesus can truly prove that he's the Son of God, the only way that Jesus can truly prove that he has made his Father his refuge is if he does what Satan is telling him to do. That's how Satan presents this scenario. But the very opposite is the case. We know that the Son was given a mission from His Father before the foundation of this world. And and the terms of this mission included living a life of humiliation, living a life of suffering, foregoing many of the rights that Jesus could rightfully claim by being the Son of God. And Jesus knows that if He were to throw Himself off the cliff, At this moment, in a spectacular showing of divine power, he knows that would not fit the mission that his father has given him. He knows that would not fit the life of humiliation and suffering that his father is calling him to. He knows that one of the rights that he has agreed to give up is this very right, to showcase in a vainglory way this divine power. In, in, in light of Satan's temptation. And so we see Jesus hold steadfast. He doesn't give in to the wiles of the evil one. He remains committed, resolutely committed, to the mission that his Father has given him to redeem the Father's people. And so Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So we see Jesus comes as the better Israel. He's, he comes as the really the only one who is able to do what we read in Psalm 91, verse Nine, the only one who truly has made God his refuge, who has not found refuge in earthly things, who's not uh, fallen prey to idolatry. He's the only one who can truly say that he has held fast to his Father in love. And so Jesus is the better Israel. He is the one who has earned these promises of protection, not just for himself, but for the people for whom he represents. 
Now, of course, we know that Jesus was not given an easy earthly life, but he was given new life. He was given the new creation, a new creation that's guarded by the, the power of God. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that Christ was born under the law. What law? The Mosaic law, the law that Israel was born under and failed to keep. Uh, the natural law, the law that every single person is born under, Jew and Gentile alike. And he was born under that law to redeem those who are also under the law, that we might receive the blessing of adoption as sons. And so Jesus is the better Israel. He is the one who did what no other person could do before him or after him. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, remember that question I posed at the beginning? You know, is this psalm only true for us? Upon the condition that we have a sufficient amount of faith, or that we are faithful enough, or that we have the right quality of faith? The answer is no. If you believe this psalm is for you, even if you have the smallest of all faiths, this psalm is for you. Even if your faith is like a smoldering wick, this psalm is for you. Even if your faith is as tiny as a mustard seed, this psalm is for you. Why? Because Jesus earned these promises for you. Because Jesus lived and died so that you might have the blessing of taking comfort in these promises. So beloved, take a hold of these promises. Write them on your hearts. Find refuge in them. Glean nourishment from them. Jesus died that you might have these promises of protection as you navigate life in a very dangerous and turbulent world. So Jesus is the better Israel. We also see that Jesus is our divine protector. Now it's quite obvious that the threats here in Psalm 91 are very earthly in nature. Right? Uh, the psalmist speaks about the threats of pestilence or plague, the threats of, of foreign armies, the, threats, uh, the threat of, of wild beasts. Now, these earthly threats function as symbols, as a shadow of much greater threats. The threat of the wrath of God, the threat of that ancient serpent, not an ordinary snake, but the devil himself. The threat of being cut off, not from a, a piece of real estate in Palestine, but from the new creation. The threat of not just mere physical death, but everlasting spiritual death. And so these earthly threats are symbols of much greater threats. And what we see is that Jesus subjected himself not merely to this world and all of its, its dangers, but Jesus also subjected himself to the greatest threat of all, which is the wrath of God. And he did this so that we might be protected. And so we do have a divine protector in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you look with me again at verses 5 and 6, these verses begin uh, with, with this statement, you will not fear. And then there's a number of things that we should not fear. But if you look at the end of verse 6, the psalmist then says, you will not fear the destruction that wastes at noonday. Now, notice the connection between this and what we read in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 15, as Mark narrates uh, the event of Good Friday, as Jesus goes to the cross, 
uh, we read in Mark 15, beginning in verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, which would have been noon, 12 p.m., when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which would have been 3 p.m. And then we read that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he breathed his last. And so at noon hour on Good Friday till 3 p.m., darkness filled the earth as Jesus was experiencing the weight of the wrath of God for your sins. Jesus experienced the destruction that wastes at noonday as he was experiencing the very wrath of God, the worst kind of darkness one could ever conceive of. And he did that for you so that you might hear these words in Psalm 91, verses 5 and 6. You do not have to fear the destruction that wastes at noonday. You do not have to fear the wrath of God, because Jesus has satisfied completely every ounce of the Father's wrath. Consequently, then, whatever trials, whatever tribulations, whatever suffering we endure in this life, that's the worst of it. We can be completely assured that we will never have to face the displeasure or wrath of our Heavenly Father, because Jesus experienced the the destruction that wastes at noonday for all of his people. Jesus is our divine protector. And we see this theme continuing on in this psalm. So for instance, in, in verse 13, the psalmist says, You will tread on the lion and on the adder, the young lion, the serpent, you will trample underfoot. Think about how Jesus himself perfectly fulfills this verse. Jesus comes as that snake crusher. Remember how the first promise of the gospel, how it's cast? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus comes to the cross and resurrection and stomps upon the head of that ancient serpent. Jesus is the one who perfectly can say that he has trampled underfoot the serpent. The serpent. Satan himself. And we then, for those of us who are in Christ, we have the blessing of sharing in this royal office of Christ. Our Heidelberg Catechism says that what it means to share in the kingly office of Christ is that we fight against the sin and the devil in this life, and hereafter we will reign with Christ over all creatures. What this means is that in Christ, we have promised a victory over this serpent. There is spiritual warfare. The New Testament is very clear about that. But we can be completely confident that we are safe and secure. The devil has no authority over us. Peter says that the devil, yes, is is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Uh, But when we resist him, he he flees. We're in the palm of the hand of our faithful mediator, intercessor, a hand in which Jesus promises that we will be forever secure. Furthermore, we have the the great hope and promise of one day reigning with Christ over all creatures, including the devil and all of his hordes. And so the psalmist can say to you, the serpent you will trample underfoot insofar as you are united to this risen Christ. 
Jesus is our divine protector. Lastly, we also see this theme at work in verse 4. So in verse 4, the psalmist uses this metaphor to describe God. He uses this metaphor of a mother bird. Uh, he describes God as this, this, this mother bird, and we are, are his chicks finding refuge under his wings. So in verse 4, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. And this metaphor is used other places throughout the Psalms, the Old Testament. God is his mother bird who, who protects his people under, under the, the refuge of his wings. Now it's interesting that when we come to the New Testament, Jesus picks up on this, this, this metaphor. So, for instance, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus is lamenting over uh, Jerusalem. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, how I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her, her chicks, but you would not have me. Jesus compares himself to a mother bird as he laments over Jerusalem. It's as if Jesus sees himself as the fulfillment of this Old Testament metaphor. Now, think for a moment what this metaphor implies. Now, why does a mother bird spread uh, her wings to cover her, her chicks? Well, he, she does this to protect her chicks from the threats of an outside world. Think if there's a hailstorm going on or a windstorm going on. That mother bird is absorbing any of the threats that exist in that storm, whether it be the pelting rain or hail or, or wind. That mother bird would ultimately give her life so that those chicks might be safe and sound underneath her body. What a wonderful image for substitutionary atonement. Jesus is like the wings of this mother bird, absorbing and protecting us from these, these greatest threats of all, the wrath of God, that ancient serpent, spiritual death, and the list could go on. This is good news for us. And this reminds us not only that Jesus is our divine protector, but as I mentioned at the beginning, I think one temptation as we read Psalm 91 is to think, are these things really true for me? All these promises of earthly deliverance, are these things really true? Are these just trite platitudes uh, to, to, to make you feel good on the dark days? Well, no, these things are objectively true. These things are promises that don't just make you feel psychologically well or good inside, but these things are true no matter how you feel. These are promises from our eternal God. And yes, this psalm does not promise you who live in the new covenant protection from every earthly danger and threat, but rather this psalm promises you protection from what these earthly th threats symbolize. The wrath of God, the ancient serpent, spiritual death, being cut off from the new creation. And so, beloved, we can say with Paul, O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, death, where uh, is your victory? So, congregation of Christ, Psalm 91 is a psalm of comfort for us.